You're listening to the Unlocking Business Growth Podcast with Nola Heal. Nola has over 30 years of experience in financial and operations management for companies around the world. As a part-time CFO, she's dedicated to working with businesses of all sizes to create sustainable growth and amplify strategy. Today, I'm excited to welcome Paul Harrietha and Holly Catalfamo to discuss their new book, The Invisible Rules, What's Really Holding Women Back in Business and How to Fix It. Paul is a career consultant, business owner, senior executive, and board chair specializing in leadership, policy, and change management. Most recently, he served as the chief executive officer of the OMA's Sponsors Corporation, the design arm of one of Canada's leading defined benefit pension plans. He has a doctorate in leadership and policy and currently serves as executive in residence at the St. Bonaventure University. He is also chair of the advisory board for Niagara University in Ontario. Holly Catalfamo is an award-winning educator who combines strong academic credentials with HR leadership experience in both the private and public sectors. She is currently the coordinator of the Honours Bachelor of Business Administration HR program at Niagara College and has been a full-time professor for over 17 years. She has been a leader in global development projects, building institutional and community capacity. Holly received her Doctorate of Education from the University of Toronto with a focus on leadership and leadership development. Welcome, Holly and Paul. Thank you for joining us today. You've done some extensive research here, identifying the hidden aspects of why women have continued to be held back and how to unlock their success and progress. To start us off, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of background beyond the bio. What was your experience before writing the book? Um, well, before the book, uh, I guess I was a, largely a career consultant, business owner, uh, and uh, spent the last two years of my career as the CEO of the Omer Sponsors Corporation, which is the design arm of one of the large defined benefit pension plans in Canada. Um, but I had always anticipated that I would uh, complete a PhD, which I did uh, while I was uh, working full time in the last few years, and then the book basically uh, was derived from my my thesis. Awesome. That's a very interesting connection. There you go. And I, I just, uh, hi, everybody. Uh, and Nola, thank you so much for having us. We uh, greatly appreciate it. I have been a professor of human resources at Niagara College in Niagara, on, beautiful Niagara-on-the-Lake. Uh, very lucky. About uh, 17 years now. And prior to working in academia, I had the honor of working in the private sector. I worked with uh, Kraft Foods International, and I have continued to be absolutely passionate about all things educational and all things related to gender equity and inclusion. And when I had the opportunity to meet Paul, I was an adjunct professor at Niagara University in Lewiston, New York. And we just had some great synergy there. And when after Paul graduated and a number of people had sort of tapped him on the shoulder and said, this, this would be a really great book. This, this would be a really great book. So Paula and I had chatted and we agreed that we would kind of bring our passions together and, uh, 
and really probe uh, the whole area of senior female leadership a little bit further. And here we are today. I will, I will add, if I might, the fun part was that Holly was one of those people who kept tapping me on the shoulder saying, <laughs> I have to write this book. And I was reminding her at that time, I did have a full-time gig as a CEO, so that there wasn't a lot, lot of extra hours in the day. And so uh, one day when we were having the discussion, I said, well, I'll do it if you'll help me. And uh, <laughs> so that's where the partnership was born. And, and then we brought our collective talents and energy to the table to create the book as a partnership. And that makes a lot of sense because trying to do a full-time executive role as well as academic side and writing a book probably could have got a little out of hand. No doubt your productivity would have kicked in quite extremely well and you would have accomplished it. So I speak from personal experience in knowing that writing and publishing a book is quite a large exercise. Um, what convinced you to actually push it over the line and get it finished and published? I can start with this, Paul. <laughs> I, I think... Um, I think you've heard the expression ignorance is bliss. Um, I, and I honestly, uh, it's such a passion project for Paul and I both, but you're quite right. I, I don't think either one of us fully realized uh, the sort of the intricacies, not so much in terms of, we certainly both understood the, I, the, the involvement in terms of the research piece, which was absolutely one of my favorite parts of the process was to have this incredible opportunity to meet these just absolutely outstanding senior female leaders. But it's sort of the second part of it is when, when you've got the drafts together and then you're starting to work through the rest of that process. I don't think Paul, I could speak for me, but I don't think either one of us fully realized uh, the extent of uh, the the process, but we really encouraged each other to just keep going and made it over made it over the finish line. Paul, pretty awesome. I would think it was probably fun at a certain level, although it was a pretty large body of work. Well, it was a huge body of work because the book is not, uh, at the end of the day, the musings of a CEO thinking about life. This was uh, and is an academic exercise. It certainly has its basis in academia. And so we pursued it as a significant research project. And it did involve interviews with 50 senior leaders and all the coding and all the writing that goes with that to ensure that it was an academic undertaking. But, uh, you know, to Holly's point, I think uh, there's a great line that I'm reminded of is that I hate writing, but love having written. Mm -hmm. No, I think at the end of the day, we're extremely pleased with the product and we feel very good about the the um, components. But that's where partnership comes in, because, uh, you know, whenever one of us started to flag a little bit, the other either picked up the slack or kicked the other in the you know what to ensure mm -hmm. that uh, we proceeded and got things done. And so we're, we're very pleased with the outcome. No, teamwork is is sometimes very beneficial, I must admit, because, um, you know, it's very easy when you're a solitary person to either give up or, or get, you know, just slow down or something. Whereas if you're being held accountable by somebody else or encouraged by somebody else, somehow you actually do make better progress. And I've questioned if one lands with a better product at the end of the day as well. Just because there are two people, you can bounce ideas off of each other, but you also just spur each other along. <laughs> so. 
Well, I think that's a, a microcosm of the, the book itself is the recognition that this is not a specific gender issue and that we want it's a business issue that requires both input and thought from the male and female perspectives. And it's one of the reasons we agreed to join up too, is that we could bring perspective to the table and have some creatively abrasive discussions and make sure that we were moving in the right directions to get a better product. And so um, I think it was a very helpful exercise and a wonderful partnership. That's a valid point. Absolutely. So now approximately, I think if I'm not mistaken, it's something like 10% of the highest paid corporate jobs are occupied by women. And yet we've been working on this problem for, I don't know, is it 30 or 50 years, maybe even longer. Mm -hmm. So what is the problem? Why are we struggling like this and still struggling like this? <sighs> oh, okay. Um, I, I, I'll take this one. And, uh, and I, I think that one of the things that uh, you're right, Nola, we have been working on it for 60 years and 50, 60 years. And it's one of the things that we're, we're often asked about. And, and I'm, I'm without question, one of those half full kind of people. So I, I like to approach this by saying, I really do believe we are making progress, mm -hmm. but at the same time, the data really doesn't support that, uh, particularly at the board level. I, I think what we've, uh, what we've discovered is that we have so much, um, such lack of diversity in terms of those who are in the key decision-making roles, those who are in the senior executive roles and in the board roles, that we haven't got past this age-old problem where like hires like or mm. board members, we're still tapping the individuals who play in our play in our sandbox to be a part of that board. And so even though I would argue that there is in 2021, there is greater awareness that there is a systemic issue out there. I, I, as I said, I'm optimistic, but I think we need to challenge in a much more um, in a in a much more forceful way those embedded assumptions that exist in so many organizations. So, Paul, I know you want to jump in, and I really invite you to do so at this time. Yeah, well, it, that's ultimately what the book was about, right, was looking at this. So it was motivated in many respects by my wife and, and her cohort. And my wife today is an extremely uh, senior executive. So it's a good news story at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But um, what the reality was is that, like she's so many women of her generation, um, sort of plateaued at a senior management level, just below the executive ranks at a point in her career, while she and her female friends uh, and colleagues saw younger, often less qualified men leapfrog them into the executive ranks. Right. And it became a huge frustration for them at the end of the day, understandably, and uh, a concern. And that's what motivated is, is to say, okay, why is this happening? And that's the point that so many women ultimately choose to leave the organizations um, and uh, either start their own shops or move to smaller organizations or or to go to go into not-for-profits or alternative forms of work. Um, those that stick around still have a, a lot that they have to overcome. Mm -hmm. And that was the question. So we sat down with these 50 senior women and said, why do women continue to be 
underrepresented at the senior most levels of corporate Canada. And what they told us ultimately is that uh, any way you look at it, women tend, and, and the answer, of course, is nuanced and complex, because if yeah. it weren't, we would have fixed it by now. Yeah. But uh, what they did is confirm for us that there, there were really four key biases or barriers that women face as they try to pursue their, their ambitions. And those are biases and barriers that men don't face. They're gender-based. And the first, ultimately, is, well, you can list them alphabetically or otherwise, but the first is this issue of prove it again, is that women more times than not have to demonstrate their outcomes and business outcomes on a sustained basis. So where men are hired on basis of uh, self-promotion and other elements, women have to demonstrate a sustained uh, quality of work over the period. The second is the maternal wall. Very obvious mm -hmm. one is that women uh, tend to continue in, uh, traditionally to, to assume uh, disproportionate amounts of responsibility for domestic elements and trying to manage both children and work, which creates, as we know, significant anxiety and difficulty to, to balance those elements. The third is this wonderful thing we call the tightrope in the business world. Women are assumed that they should act as women, whatever we tend to define that as in, in, in Western society, uh, which is typically counter to our perceptions of male-dominated leadership. So if a woman is, is too passive in her role, she's considered likable but unleadership. And if she's too assertive in her role, then she's dismissed as unlikable. And so it's a very difficult uh, uh, line that women have to walk that men simply don't. And the last is an unfortunate uh, tendency for many women to judge other women in the workplace on the basis of their dress, their act actions and their issues that can often pit women against women. Uh, again, not something that men have to worry about. Collectively, these things simply make it harder for any woman to succeed or to, to make her way up the corporate ladder at a, at a rate that men, men can. And, and the resulting frustrations often cause women to either suppress their ambitions or, or to leave the workplace one way or the other. Yeah, which is so unfortunate. I mean, we're losing, let's call it 50% of our potential bright minds mm -hmm. and their ability to create value in all of our organizations. Because, I mean, all the statistics tell us as well that the more diverse the management in an organization mm -hmm. and the organization as a whole, the better it performs from a financial perspective and, and everything else. So... It's really unfortunate, but I must admit, I mean, I happen to to be able to speak from experience because one witnesses it everywhere you go, whether you experience it or not. It's, uh, it's I, I can see all of those factors. I mean, I, st I still laugh very early in my career. I remember um, someone coming to speak with me, happened to be a woman, and basically counseling me on how I should be dressing because what I was doing wasn't. I guess wasn't appropriate or something, <laughs> but uh, you know, I thought it was business attire, but it was subtle changes. And yes, it was to look more male, but not totally male. You know, it was it, it was a pretty funny experience. When I think back on it now, at the time, it was just oh well, thanks for the advice. But uh. <laughs> Nola, I can relate to you exactly. I can tell you exactly where I was. As a junior person beginning my career, being given the exact same advice. And ironically, it was from 
what we would consider a very successful female manager who really truly believed that she was offering sage wisdom, one one female to another. Uh, so I can totally relate to your story. And I'm sure that there's many other people out there that have similar stories. Oh, I'm quite certain. And, you know, it's, and it's really interesting that, yeah, they really did feel that they were doing, as we now encourage women to do, is they were a bit of a role model and they were trying to help someone who was more junior than them succeed in their careers. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, really interesting that you had a similar experience. Yeah, I sure did. I sure did. <laughs> so was your research, the, the woman you were able to speak with, were they mainly in North America or Canada or where did you stretch to? Uh, well, Nola, thank you. We, we started with the, generally the individuals that we spoke with at first were located in Ontario, but as the project progressed, we, I, we really understood the importance of going across Canada and hearing the voices from senior female leaders from British Columbia all the way to Newfoundland. Awesome. And yes, it was it was a wonderful experience. And as Paul said, you know, we took a very much a, a methodical research-based approach to doing uh, to doing the work. And we found that the themes were very similar, if not exactly the same. So we didn't notice anything that was particularly, uh, you know, sort of Eastern Canada versus Western Canada versus Central Canada. The experiences were generally the same wherever, wherever an individual happened to, to grow their leader leadership. Interesting. Very, very interesting. So while the book is Canadian, we have, um, and that was largely because of our ability to access the data very easily we, mm-hmm. through our networks, we had access to, to very senior women. So everyone is a vice president or above and many CEOs and, and board members. Uh, as we have tested the book in the US and the UK, and we've found that uh, the perception is, is that the same rules or the same invisible rules apply and in very similar ways. Again, nuanced based on regulation, legislation, and some cultural components, but but largely there's a universality to the to the fun. Very experienced. Yeah, I haven't um, haven't uh, done research, but admittedly, I've worked and and lived in South Africa as well as Europe and the U.S. And I mean, my anecdotal experience bears the same that uh, all the women I was meeting and having looked at what's happened to their careers yeah uh, I think it's probably universally applicable maybe there's certain countries who have certainly done a better job about getting women into senior roles maybe it's not as bad there and maybe they've addressed some of the items that that you identified so based on your research uh what's the solution how do we try to change this problem well, I think there are two practical elements, and and one is uh, from a female perspective, and one is the male perspective. So there's a great line from the book that says, when it comes to gender equity, women need coaching, but men need education. And go. so we'll, we'll, if we break those two down, what we did do is ask these same leaders to say, okay, you've, you've identified very enthusiastically these barriers that are holding women back, but you've obviously succeeded. So how did you navigate 
um, these particular barriers? Is there something that we can synthesize? Is there a model we can take away from this? And invariably, the women gave us the sort of same consistent answers. And it led to something that we've called the CAPS Leadership Framework, an acronym for Credentials, Adaptability, Profile, and Support. And so all of the women that we talked to said, well, given the fact that we have to prove ourselves on a regular basis and are socialized to be less assertive in many environments, is that credentials become very, very important. They give us the expert voice and the credibility at the table when we're young and, and allow us to exercise a voice. So credentials are huge. And virtually every woman in the, woman in the book had not just, you know, post-secondary education, but had multiple degrees and professional designations. Lots of accountants, you'll be pleased. Interesting, interesting. Well, good, tick. Yes, the second was adaptability and it was this willingness to put up their hands and be a little more aggressive, to lean in on a situational basis. That is not to become inauthentic and to become overly assertive or overly aggressive, but at least give themselves permission and urge themselves to put up their hands and take risks in environments where it made sense to do so, so that they would build those uh, sort of, uh, you know, just the, the confidence that necessary to overcome some of the socialized issues that they were dealing with. The third is an extension of that is profile. It's this need to demonstrate your capabilities internally and to be part of major Ooh. projects that you've put your hand up and asserted yourself for. And, it, and that just makes a lot of sense, you know, that you can't be promoted if people don't know who you are, or what you're doing. Right. So it's a little bit of that assertion. And then finally support and this recognition that most women, especially uh, young mothers want to do it all, right? They, they want to be the best employee. They want to be the best spouse. They want to be the best mother. And ultimately you can't do all of those things on a sustained basis. Uh, so if career is going to be dominant, you need support. Often it's familial support, spousal support. Uh, most of uh, the women uh, that we talked to had spouses that were either stay at home or of equal levels within their organization. So they fully understood the demands being placed on them as senior executives. Outsource support. So this is the adoption of use of nannies or gardeners, whatever it takes to help get rid of some of the uh, burdens that uh, women have traditionally taken on as the head of the domestic area. And then um, the last one is sponsorship. So it's this ability to attract someone who takes a meaningful interest in your career, as opposed to mentorship. There's a great line that says, mentors talk to you, sponsors talk about you. And so if you Put those four things together, this becomes the framework for success and becomes a bit of a, a teaching model for women who are seeking to overcome those barriers um, without putting the burden on them. Ultimately, it's the men that are going to have to change their mindsets and that we think this is that coaching versus education is that most men um, who were in senior leadership positions and, and are prompted to hire like to manage their promotions from within their privileged networks are doing so out of ignorance, right. out of a lack of awareness, and that we're hoping that this book and discussions around this will help to prompt some of those very senior executives to start rethinking their biases and the decisions that they're making as a byproduct of those biases and begin to understand what you talked about earlier, which is the business advantages of having wow. a diverse group and an equitable group at the, the head of the table. 
And so our little pitch to them is if, if uh, you know, if you want to increase your profitability by 15%, read the book because um, uh, we want to prompt you to think equity and very, think about hiring the best kind of candidate. Yeah, very, very interesting because I do agree with you. I, I don't think it's an intentional bias most of the time. It's it's unintentional, but if they can actively see the advantage in it, maybe they can intentionally take action and, and, and try to, to, to see these things. Janice Fukakuza, who's a very senior uh, chancellor at Ryerson University, former CFO at RBC, top 100, you know, she says the difficulty is um, in the heat of the battle, we tend to hire the convenient candidate, not necessarily the right one. Mm-hmm. And that's just part of it is understanding it's not about finding the convenient candidate. It's about doing your homework and doing what's necessary to find the best possible candidate uh, for any particular opening. And I do think we're all guilty of that, quite honestly. I mean, it's not to say that women are innocent. Yeah, I mean, I've seen many women not putting women in a role uh, through sheer accident, ignorance, whatever. They, it was, it was the convenient, easy candidate. And consequently, the highly qualified or highly experienced woman was the one that lost out. So very unfortunate when that happens. So through the research, did you find that any particular credentials were required? Or did the woman need to get more credentials than an equivalent man needed? Well, need, shall we call it, as in the women who are in those roles have got more credentials than the men in equivalent roles? Paul, I think you might want to take this one because I don't know that I, well, let me let me defer to you on this one because sure we we didn't quantify so we didn't yeah. do a significant you know individual by individual access what we do know is that women are beginning to dominate STEM uh, mm. considerations right so that you're seeing now that more than half of the actuaries that are graduating are female I think the same with the accountants um, you've got two thirds of all. Um, individuals in universities today in Canada are female. So you're beginning to see this dominance. What we did see is that many of the women had gone beyond um, straight academic credentials into professions. So you see so many of the women at the top of the house are either engineers, accountants, uh, you know, in the case of the book, actuaries, because of our access to those things, uh, CFAs, so a lot on the finance side and a lot of professional designations. And we, we laughed in, in that so many of the women didn't even put their, their university designations on their business cards because they just saw that as a ticket to the dance where the, the professional designations were the yeah. ticket to the ball. Uh, and I think those professional designations become very, very handy early in the game because they are at that point then perceived as experts. And that's where the expert voice comes in, where they're invited to the table to present because of a knowledge base rather than, um, you know, again, just an enthusiasm for a right. time. So the credentials were particularly important earlier in the game. Um, did you find that the, the support and profile was more prob- potentially more important later in the game then? Well, I, I would just to go back to the 
the credential just for a second, Nola. The other piece of the professional credential that is really important is that, so you have the internal recognition or expertise, mm -hmm. but often with the professional designations, as you both know, become the um, comes that external network. So this is where you start building industry profile as you're attending uh, conferences or networking events with, uh, with individuals who are within your area of expertise. So that becomes really important as well, particularly as individuals uh, move throughout their career and it gives them exposure that uh, often would allow them the opportunity to do things like present at national conferences. So all of that sort of bundles together internally and externally to help from a career building perspective. So I didn't want to leave that um, idea. Yeah. Well, I see that as a linkage into that profile thing anyway. The, the credentials are giving them the ticket to be able to do, <laughs> to build the profile, shall we call it. Yes. Yeah. So I think, it, you know, you use the word linkage, and I think that's an, ex an exceptional one. We had sort of envisioned the model, and it's never this clean, but it's sort of uh, platforms on a circular staircase. Mm -hmm. So it begins with credentials that get you to the table. You begin to assert yourself a little bit more once you have the confidence to do so based on those credentials and your performance within the organization. So that's the adaptability, which then helps you to build that profile. And the profile ultimately leads to your ability to attract a sponsor. Sponsor not attracted to people that they don't know, again, uh, largely because sponsorship does require a commitment and, and uh, a risk to reputation if you start sponsoring the wrong sorts of people. So there is an expectation. So it doesn't necessarily work that cleanly. And we don't see it as necessarily one little, uh, you know, circular rise from one floor to the next. Process. It, it's, it's, yeah. It's a continuous process. So you get credentials, you adapt a little bit more, you assert, you build a little bit of profile. We talk about it, multiple levels of profile, and then you start to gain some support, which then gives you additional credentials because you're getting up to operate within advanced business processes. So you're gaining experience and business outcomes, which then leads you to assert yourself a little more aggressively on the next project, which gives you additional profile, which helps you to gain further support. So we sort of see it as this uh, cyclical kind of ascent rather than one, but they are absolutely linked and one tends to lead to the other. Yeah, absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. Almost sounds like it's a progression of confidence building, mm. both within the woman who is trying to make progress as well as in the men around her or woman around her and potentially the sponsors that the more progress is made on one, the more progress can be made on the next and round it goes. So that's very interesting. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant assessment. Can we use that going forward? Can we? <laughs> you sure could. Yeah, you learned it from me on, on our podcast. There you go. There you go. We will we'll credit it. We will. Certainly. Awesome. <laughs> So, flowing out of this process and all that you've learned, if I'm not mistaken, you have created the CAPS Leadership uh, Institute. What are you doing there? Is it is it trying to to promote the learning on this, or what are you accomplishing? So, our goal is to 
is really to promote gender equity and really to get people having these conversations. And as Paul said earlier, I mean, we, we really need to start changing the narrative at the senior levels within organizations, within boards of directors. And so that truly is our a very, it, it sounds overly simple, but we want, we want to see change. We want to affect change because as you said, Nola, there we're missing out on 50% of the most talented people in the world by by continuing to perpetuate, you know, sometimes sometimes systemic inequities, sometimes unintentional, but nonetheless, there's a there's a huge gap that, and we all know. We keep talking about this war for talent. We know there's a war for talent, but we need to. I think we just need to be more mindful of of looking at within our organizations. Remove, start removing those barriers. Start trying to find innovative and creative ways. We talked about talent management earlier and our talent management practices, our our recruitment processes generally are still very, very non-diverse. We still go to the same websites that produce the same candidates. So I think we're really compelled to try to do, start thinking about how can we do things differently so we can really make an effect change. No, it makes a lot of sense. Do you see a role for language in this war as well because some of the observations I've had along the way is women will refer to themselves or uh, experiences um, in nuanced different ways to the way men do which makes me wonder nowadays we are recruiting a lot more using artificial intelligence and are the tools maybe also excluding women or other other nationalities or whatever through the process? So uh, you know, it's yeah. it's it's probably a complex problem. Honestly, well, it is a complex problem, but language is an essential element. Um, even to the point where one of the reasons, you know, when we first started talking to the women, we asked them you know, very straightforward to what do you attribute your success Mm -hmm. and to an individual, they said, good luck or good fortune. Yes. I've never heard a male colleague tell me (laughs) that they were sitting at the the leadership table because of good luck or good fortune. So, and I don't think it's a false humility. I I think it's cultural and I, 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 you know, think it's, it's a learned issue. So we go back to the, the, um, Women need coaching, men need education. So women need to be coached out of some of their language. Right. But men need to begin to understand the language and the actions of women. So I've sat at tables and I've made the mistakes where we have a, uh, promoted a male because he says he wants the job and she's never stood up and said she wants it. Well, that's, that's cultural. So what we need to be doing as promotions, uh, you know, as people managers, as leaders, is to understand that that is, in fact, the the uh, the behavior. And we need to prompt those individuals Mm -hmm. to become uh, the next level leader rather than wait for them to assert themselves. They've got their heads down. They're working like crazy. They're doing wonderful stuff. And they're frustrated as get all get out because people aren't recognizing them. And so we need to do a far, far better job, both from a, a process standpoint, 
well, a policy and a practice standpoint, but from an emotional intelligence standpoint and an awareness standpoint as leaders. And so that's part of what we're working with teams uh, on right now is through CAPS is we've been fortunate enough to have been retained by some very, very significant organizations to come in and have some of those discussions with them. And uh, again, uh, our view is pretty simple. My PhD is in leadership. I tend to think that the answer to every question in business is leadership, you know, better leadership, better leadership. So I think that the the issue around gender equity can happen overnight. You just need a leadership team to stand up and say, that's it. Going forward, we are going to have a balanced board and we are going to have a balanced C-suite. Our next hires are going to be assuming they're the best candidates, but we're certainly not going to deny them jobs that we have in the past for the reasons that we've denied them in the past. So I think this can happen very, very quickly. And that's our message to those leadership teams and those boards that have brought us in is if you're not doing it now, it's up to you just to make Stop. the decision. It's that yeah. simple. You know, I mean, they do do say that the culture, quite honestly, is determined from the top. It's It's supported from the bottom. And if there's an active initiative from the top, the likelihood is that there'll certainly be greater support and learning below in order to, to support these processes. I do think from my perspective, it's got to work both ways. But mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I mean, it's an awesome place to start. And it's at least a large part of the problem is to actually get these senior leaders thinking and acting differently, and maybe things will eventually change. So from this perspective, are there trends that you see hopefully or probably emerging over the, the, the shall we call it short to medium term, to try and fix this in any particular ways? Or do you see any of the areas or markets being more amenable to the change or more resistant to the change? Well, I I think that uh, one of the things that we've learned uh, in terms of in order to change the narrative, in order to change the experience for aspiring senior female leaders is we need organizations and leadership to be committed to workplace flexibility. And so we shouldn't be judged by the, the, you know, the, the time you clock in in the morning and the time you clock out at night, but in terms of what we should be evaluating individual performances based on outcomes. And one of the trends that we've definitely seen throughout the pandemic is the fact that we have learned that we can function effectively in a remote environment. What? What's, I think, going to be a very interesting question in the coming months, in fact, it's, it's upon us now. If you'd asked me this question six months ago, I, I, I'm not sure that I would say it's it's on our doorstep, but I do believe it is on our doorstep, is that with what we've learned around workplace f- flexibility, will organizations demonstrate that commitment to all their employees, but certainly the flexibility that aspiring female leaders need and ensure that we're recognizing outcomes as opposed to what has been long since perceived, who's, you know, who's the hardest worker because they happen to be there. It doesn't yes. matter playing solitaire. They just happen to be there to be there. Yeah. In the morning. <laughs> 
But and I am being flippant, and I don't mean to be, um, you know, to be dismissive of of individuals that happen to like working at the office because there are a number of individuals, as we've seen as well, where that is their most productive place. But I think we just have to, we we just have to recognize that that flexibility has to be something that all of us can embrace, male and female workers. I'm sure you know of many uh, individuals who are male, who have young children at home, who are popping in and out of the Zoom calls that would also talk about some of the stresses that they've experienced in the last uh, year and a bit. So yeah, no, and managing on outcomes is a very valuable skill. And yet, I I don't know if we were resistant to learning, or just people were too conditioned to managing Mm -hmm. based on presence and hours in the Mm -hmm. seat. Because I mean, I I laugh because I I um, assisted a very large company on a profit on a project basis a couple of years ago. And you could walk around the office and the number of people who were sitting surfing the internet or playing games was inordinate. And yet mm-hmm. you would see some of usually the younger younger people running in and out of the office for children's commitments or doctor's appointments or whatever it was. And they were considered less dedicated. And I mean, I had mm-hmm. an argument with one of the managers for that exact reason, because this person was so productive in the hours they were at work, where these others were standing around the water cooler or surfing the internet because they were required to be at work. They didn't need to deliver anything that was irrelevant. Whereas hopefully, I mean, it's a, I, I see it potentially as a benefit moving forward in that we can manage everybody based on outputs. And I mean, a, a lot of the surveys have said Canadian productivity isn't as high as some other countries in the world. Well, this might be our opportunity to correct our productivity because those who don't have a high level of productivity maybe won't be in the job next year because we found someone who does a better job. So it may not only be fixing this exact problem that you've been researching, which would be pretty awesome. So do either of you have any thoughts that you'd like to leave listeners with today? Perhaps you both have some thoughts. There's certainly uh, lots of things that we're keen about and and do want to continue to discuss, but I do think that it comes back to, and uh, we've alluded to it, but I don't think we've stressed it enough, that at the end of the day, organizations need to understand that gender equity, and we can get beyond that to inclusion, um, is not a women's issue. If women could have fixed this on their own, they would have done so a very, very long time ago. This is a business issue, and this is something that it is in the best interest of any leadership team and board to address. And until, unfortunately, men who continue to dominate business environments in Canada change their perspectives, we're going to have trouble. We're going to have another 30 to 50 years of going through. And one of the things that we picked up from all of the women that we talked to was their sadness and frustration over the pace of change. Mm -hmm. They had figured when they came into the industry 25, 30 years ago that this would have been addressed then. 
it might have been one generation where we had to, you know, retire the existing uh, leadership team and bring in the new diverse team. Uh, it hasn't happened. And I've personally sat through way too many meetings recently with CEOs and board chairs that said, Paul, of course, we believe entirely in gender equity, but, you know, I have a fiduciary responsibility to hire the best single candidate. And invariably, that single best candidate is male, white, and from the same privileged um, networks. And we need to change that fundamentally. And if that means quotas, uh, and quotas, not in an affirmative action kind of way, but in a, we are required to address this and to hire the best possible candidate for the job based on a greater understanding of those capabilities. Um, then uh, and if that's what it requires, that's what it requires. We need to get to critical mass as quickly as possible. And as soon as it happens, and as soon as we begin to see the enhanced thought processes and discussions that are happening at the board, and as soon as we see the business outcomes, and as soon as young women can imagine themselves in those roles because they have role models, this goes away. My daughter, my, my last little one was my daughter is 27. When I told her about the book, said, why are we writing that book, Dad? It's going to be obsolete in no time. And I said, honey, hopefully. Hopefully. I'd love it to be obsolete. I'm exactly. sure it was your observation. Yeah. I can't wait. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be obsolete and unless some significant changes occur. So this is to the men out there. Rethink your biases, rethink your positions, and begin to think about your business more holistically. You can't compete globally if you deny yourself access to 50% of the talent pool. I don't know that I can add much to that, Paul, because all, all I'd want to say is look at the evidence. As Nola said, diverse companies consistently outperform non-diverse companies. Make the commitment to change, not just lip service, make the commitment to change and then hold people accountable for the change. Makes a lot of sense. And and support the woman along the way, those who are a little more potentially observed as subservient or less promoting themselves, see if there's a reason for that, you know, because in some cases the culture and supporting them speaking out and being willing to put up their hand to do the things or, or, or ask for the promotions. So that makes a lot of sense. So how can listeners get hold of a copy of the book or contact you if they actually want to learn more about all these awesome topics and your institute to get them to help? Well, we are uh, available at uh, Indigo. Uh, you can find the Invisible Rules on Indigo. You can find the Invisible Rules as well on Amazon. Oh, the so, old Amazon. Yes. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> We also invite you to visit our website at oh, any time course, yes. at www.capsleadership.ca. And uh, we're, again, uh, we just want to tell the story. So please reach out at any time to have a discussion with us. We're happy to have that. Um, you know, no obligations, no considerations. We just uh, would love to, to understand other people's perspectives and basically to continue the study. So, and we want to thank you very much for uh, helping us get the message out and taking time today to meet with us. Oh, you're very welcome. It's, it's certainly an awesome cause. And I think the more we continue the conversation and highlight 
the nuanced problems that exist mm-hmm. in many cases, the more we can progressively all work to overcome the problem, even in our small ways or large ways, depending on the role we're in. I mean, it, it would be awesome to get to a situation where by the time we or our children just get in fully into our positions in the workforce that the book is obsolete and there are no invisible rules. In fact, the invisible rules have moved on and there's some new rules that impact some other area other than diversity of whatever type. And I mean, I know immigrants, they have a similar problem in accessing some of these things because they too are different, in quotes, as we shall call it. They think differently, they speak differently. So, well, thank you very much, Holly and Paul, for joining me today. This has certainly been really awesome. And I have read the book and I do agree with many of your observations and the research you've done is absolutely phenomenal. I recommend everybody does grab a copy and take a look and continue this conversation, learning and improvement. Thank you so much, Paula. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today and have an awesome day. The Unlocking Business Growth Podcast is sponsored by Protea Consulting Professional Corporation. We help our clients translate their operating and accounting data into the strategy for business growth they're truly capable of. Subscribe to the Unlocking Business Growth Podcast on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify to hear from other companies that have overcome growth challenges. Get a free copy of NOLA's latest book, The 5F Strategy, Bottom Line Growth in Any Economy Without Additional Sales and Marketing and download the Financial Growth Scorecard at proteaconsulting.ca. Work with us to achieve your business potential. To find out if we're a fit for your business, email info at proteaconsulting.ca and follow the Unlocking Business Growth Podcast on LinkedIn and Facebook.